Well, this fall at Faith Church, we've been working through the book of James in our evening service. And today we're up to James 4, verses 1 to 10. James 4, verses 1 to 10. Let's all take this opportunity to humble ourselves to God as he speaks his word into our lives. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is God's holy and infallible word for us this evening. Now, for a while in one of my high school PE classes, we had to play field hockey. And if you don't know, field hockey is a lot like ice hockey, ice hockey, except without the ice, without the skates, without the padding, and in the case of my class, without the talent. But we did have a couple people who were pretty good and who were really competitive. My memory is fading a little bit, but I think their names were TJ and Riley. And TJ and Riley had played league hockey, and they really knew what they were doing and thought they had it all together. And one particular day, when they were on the same team, they decided they were going to win that game that day no matter what. So the whole class period, they were yelling at each other, and they were yelling at everybody else on the team. You passed to the wrong side. Pass the ball here, here, here. Don't pass in front of the net. Don't do that. And they both wanted to take all the shots all the time. It didn't matter if the other guy was on the other side of the net with no one close to him and he had three defenders in front of him. He was going to take the shot. Now all that boiled over when TJ dinged Riley's old football injury. And when Riley told him to apologize, TJ just started screaming at him and started insulting his hockey play and his family and his car and his appearance. And then TJ took a swing at Riley with his stick. And this might be an appropriate point to mention that Riley was maybe 5'8 and 140 pounds maybe. And Riley was about 6'2 and easily 240 pounds. So TJ took a swing at Riley. And the next thing you know, he was running across the field, running like a scared rabbit with a 240-pound pit bull on his tail. Now Riley caught up to him, got a couple pretty good whacks in, and then a couple other football players came running up and tackled Riley so we got some good hockey football cross-training going on. And the class didn't end well for anybody. TJ had a limp for a few days, and Riley got to have a nice sit-down talk with the PE teacher 
and the football coach and one of our friendly neighborhood police officers. Not a good ending for anybody. It is really stupid to fight with your own teammates, but it happens. And James seems to have been writing to believers who kept on getting in fights with their brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't know exactly what these fights were all about. James doesn't exactly say that. It probably was some sort of fight over who got to be in charge, who got the spotlight, who got to be recognized, and who got to be the leader. But whatever the particular issue was, James's audience was going after each other pretty seriously. From how James describes it, it's almost like these people were going to war with each other. What causes wars and conflicts among you, he asks? You kill, covet, quarrel, fight, and you still don't get what you want. Now, all of those are pretty bad things to be doing, but James treats them as just symptoms of a deeper spiritual sickness. All of these fights and quarrels are just the presenting problem. They're the obvious thing you'd notice if you watch this group together. But James says that's not the real issue here. The real trouble isn't the fights that these people are having. The real issue, the source of all of that fighting, the source of all those little wars, is these people's self-indulgent desires. Their whole focus is on what they want for themselves. They are bitterly envious of people who have more than them, and they are selfishly ambitious to get more for themselves. The goal of all their fighting, all their conflicts, was just self-indulgence. The word that James uses in verses 1 and 3 for desires and pleasures is hedone, which translates into the English hedonistic. And if you talk about hedonistic pleasures, you're talking about something ridiculously self-centered and just crazily indulgent. So James traces these believers' battles back to their self-centered desires. They're fighting because each of them only wants what's best for themselves. They want the worldly power, the possessions, and the prominence. In fact, these people have made an idol out of their own pleasures. And James is telling them that they have to choose between that idol and the true Lord God. Now, a few years ago, I read this book called Gang Leader for a Day, A Rogue Sociologist Takes to the Streets. And the author of that book, Sudhir Venkatesh, or Sid for short, was a sociology student at the University of Chicago. And he was focusing his research on the urban poor, so he decided one day to go to the projects and interview a bunch of gang members and see what they thought of being the urban poor. Now, obviously, some people have more book smarts than street smarts, and he was one of them at that point. So he had some interesting experiences trying to get gang members to fill out this multiple-choice questionnaire about how they felt about being gang members. But through that process, Sid actually ended up becoming pretty good friends with JT. And JT was one of the big leaders of the Black Gangster Gangster Disciple Nation of Chicago. And over the next couple years, as Sid and JT developed this relationship, JT opened up a lot of the gang world and a lot of the world of the projects to Sid and gave him an insider's look at what life on the poor side of Chicago really looks like. But one day, a community organizer with a different set of connections said to Sid, hey, why don't you come to this thing? 
There's going to be some business leaders, some pastors, and some gang leaders, and we're going to figure some stuff out in our community. And Sid thought, hey, that sounds like an interesting thing to go to, see how all these dynamic works, dynamics work. But then on the way, Sid bumped into JT, and JT was ticked. Now, Sid did not have a clue what was going on, but after a little bit of back and forth, JT just exploded on him. If you go into the meeting with that guy, JT said, if you go into the meeting with that man, every time you walk in somewhere after that, people are going to think you belong to him. If you go into the meeting with that guy, you are going to identify yourself with him, and he is going to be the one who's going to protect you out here, not me. So are you going to hang out with his people or my people? And during this whole conversation outside the meeting, the other guy was standing there laughing and telling, said, hey, yeah, come on in. Not a big deal. Just come on in. But the truth of the matter is that if Sid walked through that door, he was going to be identified with that guy from then on. But if he stayed out and he hung with JT, he'd be identified with them. This was not a one-time choice. This was an identity-defining decision. And so ultimately, Sid listened to JT, and he just stayed away from the meeting. There was no middle way. It was going to be one group or the other. Being friends with one of those two men meant being not connected to the other. The choice to do one thing or the other was going to define how the whole community saw him and believe, or saw where he belonged. Now, in this text for today, James is telling his readers that they face a similar choice. They can't spend all their time and energy on their own hedonistic pleasures and then turn around and pretend like everything is okay between them and God. Either you serve your own interests or you serve God's interests, James is saying. Either you worship an idol of your own making or you worship the true Lord. You can't just be friendly all around. If you choose to be a friend of the world, you are choosing to be an enemy of God. There is no third choice here. And that's why James calls his audience an adulterous people in verse 4. Really what he means is these are an idolatrous people. These are people who are making and serving idols. They're trying to belong to more than one ultimate master, and they're being unfaithful to the true Lord God. They're making their own desires, their own pleasures, their own position and prominence more important than their relationship with God. And so James tells them that they are cheating on the Lord. When Sid had to choose between those two sets of connections on the streets of Chicago, one choice was probably better than the other, but it's not like they were totally different. But the choice that James puts in front of his audience is totally one or the other. If you choose the world, you are headed in a totally different direction from God. God is a holy God. God is a jealous God. And you cannot follow him halfway. It is all or nothing. But along with that, the benefits of befriending the world or God are totally different. James has already showed us where befriending the world leads, and that path ends in coveting and conflict, in all kinds of little personal wars. But, says verse 6, but God gives us more grace. 
where the world gives endless, unfulfilled desires and unending conflict, God gives grace. Where the world gives war, God gives peace. But God does stand opposed to the world, and he stands opposed to the proud. So as long as we're interested only in our self-advancement, God will eventually break us down. But God also gives his people the grace that we need to be humble. And then he continues to work graciously in us as we humble ourselves before God. And so, of course, verse 7 tells us to submit ourselves to God. And then there's a whole list of commands. Submit to God, resist the devil, come near to God, wash your hands, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then again at the end, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James is really pushing his point here. You can't just be friends with God and with the world and you can't just drift in the middle either. You have got to be all in. And so James tells his audience to wash their hands, to change how they act. And he also tells them to purify their hearts, to change how they think, and to change what they really, really want out of life. And he even tells his audience to grieve and mourn and wail. James is handing out strong medicine here because he knows that self-centered sin is a serious sickness. Jesus once told the story of two men who went to the temple to pray. And the first man, a Pharisee, stood up and he recited a list of what a great guy he was. He profusely thanked God that he himself could be such a good man who could do so many good things. But this Pharisee wasn't really serving God. He was really serving his own desire to look good. You can picture this guy walking back out of the temple after praying, happy and laughing. And that's the kind of laughter and joy that James wants his readers to get rid of. James is really concerned that his audience is going to laugh off their sin and just get on with regular life. He's concerned that the good news will hit this people and they'll just shake it off and continue doing what they've always done and think that that's good enough. But it's not. It's not good enough. In Jesus' story, a second man came into the temple after the first man. And this second man was an evil tax collector. But he went into the temple, and he went and he stood in a corner out of the way, and he crouched down. He didn't even look up to God, but he just desperately prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that... That man, the man who humbled himself, the man who threw himself on God's grace, that is the man that God lifted up. And so Jesus ended his story by saying, that was the man who went home justified before God. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, said Jesus, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If we follow our self-centered desires, we become envious and arrogant, 
and we end up in all kinds of stupid conflicts. When we just pursue our own pleasures, we make ourselves friends of the world and enemies of God. But when we come near to God, God comes near to us. When we ask God for mercy, He always gives us His grace and His peace. Truly, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift us up.